Cineboys to Cinemen, episode two. Hello. Hello. Hope you're well, uh, whatever you're doing, wherever you are. Blackfriars, Swansea. Brixham. Swansea West. Baghdad. Uh, Running out of... K2. K2. <laughs> They're all the places that we seem to have got the most listens, so... Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Thank you very much to the good people of... Uh, K2. K2, yeah. All three of you. Um, <laughs> a quick look at the most popular films over the last decade or so would reveal two things. Firstly, the most obvious thing, the popularity of superhero films. Yeah. Obviously. And secondly, the amount of prequels, threequels... Sequels. Remakes. Reboots. Yeah. Soft and hard. Soft and hard. Mm. All of which alludes to one thing. The presence of nostalgia or cultural nostalgia as the term goes yeah in this episode we'll not only discuss our own relationship with nostalgia but in a more broader context specifically to film yeah and many examples both good and bad as well Hmm. so uh, strap in and enjoy questing the cinematic void so nostalgia then on a more personal level yeah uh is I would say, is a tool in which we use to navigate the more difficult parts of our lives. Okay. When we're like in a period of struggle, psychological turmoil, boredom, Yeah. Um, we will retreat back to the memories of a part of our life that we have almost built up in our minds to yeah. be the best it's ever going to be. Yeah. Uh, this is typically in youth. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I think in a period in our lives as we are in our late 20s, early 30s. And I think you speak to many people, many of our friends are in this age group who would probably say they do the same in similar situations because I think that your youthful past is still just about close enough to feel like you can sort of of grab hold of it for lack of a better term. Yeah, yeah, you still, you can kind of recognize yourself from your younger years without it being embarrassing almost yeah uh, it's it's i mean there's plenty of plenty of fucking embarrassment oh for absolutely me. yeah but you it's know not 15 year old embarrassment no god know. no that's different more yeah. just uh yes being being an idiot 21 year old on yeah. the streets of falmouth <laughs> yes as an example yeah uh, yeah no I, I agree i think that it's a tool for you to yeah reminisce and that can be joyful but also sometimes be quite painful as well especially yeah. when you're not when you're not with f- friends maybe perhaps when you're on your own I, I sometimes find that I think about those memories in a slightly more negative way just in the sense that I'm never really going to go back to that state um yeah. but they can also be very 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 joyful as well yeah um, I mean I think that's sort of the the collective act of uh reminiscing is wonderful i mean when you're in a, mm. and we've done it with that in a big group and, oh yeah and we'll just be routinely talking about, do it yeah, yeah yeah i mean so much it's almost like the foundation of our, a lot of our discussions isn't it? i'm sure yeah. for many friend groups it's sort of recounting tales of mm. sort of you know, youthful exuberance yeah, and silliness um <laughs> but I, I i think you're right i think there is something in that in a sense that it is it is a tool that definitely has uh, potential for great joy, but also great sadness. Yeah, I think you can elevate those memories to the point that they almost become false. Yeah, in the yeah. sense that uh, it wouldn't—it's never going to get better than this, and that can have quite disastrous ramifications moving forward in life. If you're moving forward into a time of your life which is, you know, not without challenge. I mean, you know, it's it's, it's more, more sp- responsibilities, more responsibilities. You know, you're going to have to have more boring conversations. Yeah. 
Uh, you're, about, gonna, you're probably going to become more boring, yeah, whether gonna, you like it or you're not. You're going to find yourself talking about the best place to buy fair trade duck eggs or <laughs> kitchen extensions or, <laughs> yeah. or having to deal with like an estate agent charging money for something God, that you don't quite understand. Mortgages, why. Yeah. yeah. you know, like all those things. And I just think in those times, I, that's when I find myself thinking, oh man, like I, w- you know, I would love to be sort of just like 20 Again, yeah, you know, or nineteen, twenty, a grand and half from the government. Yeah, yeah, and just sort of like, yeah, being able to like walk into someone else's flat and go, "Do you want to drink yeah. this bottle of three pound cider with me and just see what happens?" Oh yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. I think oh. it, it it's a sort of it's a it's a it's a tool not only for not only for that, but it's also a tool for meaning, giving ourselves meaning in life. Yeah, meaning and a sense of purpose in how well we're doing. Yeah, how well we think we're doing. Yeah, com- yeah. You kind of compare yourself to where you know. Yeah, that's a classic phrase, isn't it? Where were you five years ago? Where yeah. do you want to be in five years? It's like, it, that, that's all, all ties to nostalgia. And I think it also ties in sort of aspirations because I think it's a key point that maybe we should sort of linger on just a touch more before we get into the nitty gritty about films because this is obviously a film podcast. And I was just <laughs> talking about our miserable lives, um, but it, you know, it's um, you know, it's this sort of point. I think there's a tipping point in your sort of teens, early twenties into your sort of mid-20s to late-30s, where you sort of have to sort of start to think about what your aspirations are and maybe realigning them to fit in with the world and the people you've met and the the things you want to do. Hmm. And, you know, in an extreme form, it's put down the guitar and get behind the desk. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) You know, but in other ways, it's maybe just settling into things and, and actually finding joy in things you never expected. Yeah. Or being in a dead end job and hating it. Yeah. Which is the negative side of that, um, but I think it <laughs> to sort of steer it away from being too negative. I think it is. Uh, I don't know. Like I, I feel like it is this sort of. It's especially important for that in the sense that you are having to make those big decisions and yeah. get a sense of purpose from those decisions. Mm, yeah, we're very fortunate to at least have these things within reach, no matter how difficult they are at the moment. Yeah. Technically, they still are within reach, just yeah, about. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they can be sources of great pressure, both mm. internal and external, yeah. societal. Yeah, um, you know, a lot of the just things we some have to do have been decided by people just as clueless as we are, but for some reason they've become yeah. the thing to do. Yeah, and again, those <laughs> things can provide great joy kids, house, marriage, mm-hmm. but they can also be sources of great pressure. Yeah. And I think we need to feel like collectively we're all doing the right thing. And that's where nostalgia can also be mm. strange, strangely deployed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, it can also be deployed by uh, film studios. Yes. Nostalgia. Or indeed by any creator of any medium. It's In fact, it seems to be, as we sort of alluded to in that intro, mm. one of the most popular ways in which to sort of sell something to you. Absolutely, yeah, and I think that's become a lot more prevalent in the last sort of twenty to thirty years. Would you say? I mean, the use of it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely grown. I mean, I'm not sure about the sort of time frame of it because I think it's quite difficult to quantify. But yeah, I think. I mean, I'm only twenty eight, so I don't know why I said thirty years. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Who knows? I think we are living in a sort of bizarre time where you know there is just so much nostalgia. I mean, in films and in video games, Mm. in music sort of almost trying to transport us back to a point in our life, a yeah. stage in our life, and, and the emotions and feelings that come with that. Yeah. And that's why it's such a powerful tool, I feel. Yes, and a tool and that's that... why it works so well. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. I guess it's in that moment that this piece of culture that we've consumed wants to anchor us in, mm. that, that period in your life where everything was great, and then see greater merit in the film or 
game or piece of music that we've listened to as a result yeah strange it's like it's almost like it's hijacking a point in a, a segment of your own mind and using it to for the betterment of the product you know yeah, what I mean it's, yeah, very, yeah. it's very clever sort of and it can be employed quite subtly as well I find yes I mean um, but there are so many examples where subtlety isn't really the name of the game it is just mm. in your face yeah remember this yeah remember this remember how good it was remember how good your life was then it goes back to the thing we touched on earlier in that in some ways nostalgia is the act of lying to yourself yeah and I think it can be reinforced by watching a film that is incredibly overt in its attempts to make you think about a period of your a time yeah. in your past or oh. a version of yourself um, with more reverence than perhaps it deserves. Perhaps, yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it might not have been all that good. But you remember it like it's like it's incredible. And um, yeah, it's just it's odd. I do feel like it's it's tactile and unwarranted sometimes, I find. Yeah, I mean, we're going to unpack some good and bad examples of that shortly. But one thing I want to touch on quickly is an aspect of how cultural nostalgia can uh, almost encourage you to sort of live a moment in history that you've never lived in before, like mm. almost like vicariously. Yes. If you think about, I mean, I know we're sort of moving away from film again a little bit, but if you think about Stranger Things, yeah. that has sort of it ushered in, alongside other aspects of culture, a sort of obsession with the 80s. Yeah. Uh, the 80s seems to periodically be the decade that people seem to be the most obsessed with, for whatever, for, I'm sure for a lot of reasons, but it almost encourages you to sort of imagine your life in that era yeah even you, though like yeah the, the no target connect- audience yeah just uh, most of them born in the 90s yeah right? you have no connection to that era you weren't born there obviously you could learn about it but you yeah. don't know what it was like to live in that area if anything you you the knowledge you have of the 1980s probably more often than not all about all to do with the films that you've watched yeah as opposed to the actual era like because that's that's how you kind of would relive an era like that yeah just through media culture almost creates a way that you interact with history and this idea that you can sort of vicariously live this era it almost encourages you to view periods in history through a certain lens the camera lens we talked about this earlier but it's like when you think about the 80s for example you think about that sort of grain or neon lighting you know it's impossible to conceive the idea you're just looking at it through human eyes the same eyes that take in your beautiful face right now <laughs> oh well no I, I always think that like you know if you were to imagine yourself in 1911 for example you're gonna think sepia toned aren't you yeah just because of strange. that but in actuality that period of history would is gonna be really colorful of course it is it's gonna be the same yeah <laughs> the yeah. same thing like color wise is the yeah. same things you see now and there's not gonna be any grain or scratches on the film no because it's not film it would be with your own eyes it is just yeah it, and that's just i guess how how forms of media influence how you think about history and how you weirdly remember history. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Very good. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> right. So let's um, think about a couple of film examples. Oh, yeah. Um, there are many franchises at the moment that have been rebooted or there are planned reboots yeah. or sequeled or prequeled. I think a good place to start would be Alien. Alien ah. franchise. I think that um, the whole sort of one of the great strengths of the original film, and to, to a lesser extent the the sequel, uh, which I obviously still love, mm. um, but for different reasons, of course, is that the ambiguity is central to your emotional connection to the film. Okay. The ambiguity of why the alien is there. Yeah. 
the ambiguity as to how it was made. Yeah, the company itself. The company itself, the mission, everything. Ambiguity is so central to the film's success. Yeah. In terms of how it generates tension, fear. Mm. You know, and I think that... And again, it sort of carries on. I mean, it does explain a little bit more in in Aliens, Mm. but it's still quite vague. There isn't really a great deal of mythologizing there. No, it's self-contained. Both those films are really self-contained. Like, yeah. I mean, literally in the first film, it's all set on one spaceship, and there's eight of them. Yeah, <laughs> is there eight? I think there's eight. Uh, and we yeah, got the it's... we got the we got the characters uh, age wrong in uh, Afterson, the girl's age. Oh, she's not nine. No, she's eleven. Fuck. Anyway, <laughs> sorry about that. Yeah, you know, we'll go with eight though for there's the eight. alien. Yeah, there's eight, fuck eight. it. Yeah, no, but um, yeah, I, I can, and that's it. It's just. The concept is, you know, looking back on it, so basic. And I mean that with, like, with absolute, like, with compliments. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think Alien for me, and I, and I guess this will tie into more about our discussion in terms of how we personally interact with things. But Alien for me is like a big watershed moment in my life. Yeah. Like, in terms of horror. First, 18, first 18 I ever bought. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Eight, it seems to be like, you know, but yeah, it seems to be like that way for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that was like a big cultural moment for me. And that can have ramifications in how I interact with uh, later mm. off things. And we can talk about that. Yeah, man. Um, but it, for me, it's like the biggest moment in sci-fi or horror for me in terms of like just the sense of atmosphere. And again, the am- atmosphere is reliant on the ambiguity. Yeah. It's so weird that that film was directed by Ridley Scott. Think about it. Like his films are usually so high concept and so brazen. And, uh, and again, I mean that in a, in a kind of a positive way. You've got like Gladiator. You've got Blade Runner. Like Exodus, Gods and Kings. <laughs> Alien's really small. I love that. I yeah, love his kind yeah. of humble beginnings of of this guy who ended up directing like big bombastic blockbusters. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, anyway, sorry. I that's okay. No, that's an interesting point. No, that's a, a welcome one. Love that film. I like that. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's. Mm. Okay. Cool. It's up there with most people for a reason, right? Yeah, yeah. But now we look forward to the release of the films, mm. in sort of more, more more contemporary releases, should I say? Yeah. Of uh, films from the Alien franchise, and I think this ties into a sort of wider cultural need that has been certainly massaged by the internet, yeah. um, which is the need to mythologize everything, the need to explain mm. every detail. It's yeah. not enough now to have ambiguity in mainstream culture. Everything has to have an origin story. Yeah. And there has to be a detailed account of why these things exist. Yeah. So Ridley Scott undertook that yeah. with Prometheus. I was going to say, starting with Prometheus, isn't it? Mm. This, that was when that sort of resurgence came about. Because uh, even the sequels, sorry to but even, even the sequels, like uh, Alien Cubed, as you call it, <laughs> yeah, Alien yeah. 4, they don't, they, again, they're fairly self contained yeah. stories. I mean, they sort of get a bit ridiculous in their own way, but they're not. They're not ridiculous in the sense that they want to sort of explain the origin story of the alien and what happened and how it ties into this wider sort of like grand narrative of creation. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, yeah, it was just about... It was, you know, say what we will about those uh, three and four, but they are still about the characters. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, Prometheus. Oh, God, it's all coming back to me now. Um, yeah, it starts with like the creation of biological life, doesn't yeah. it? And you're yeah, like, yeah. what is yeah, going yeah. on? Okay. Is this, but, but I mean, they marketed it like not really as an alien film didn't they no. he said i think ridley scott says like the keen uh, the eagle-eyed viewer it wouldn't will notice strands of like the alien uh right. franchise and i remember a reviewer saying like you're gonna get slapped in the face with these strands <laughs> yeah it's yeah. So, yeah um bizarre but uh it does it just introduces all of a sudden 
huge, almost kind of gladiator levels of scale unnecessarily yeah. and, and like you say and it mythologizes the the origin of the alien and i think it, i mean it's worth pointing out that as much as i don't like that in the sense that it sort of ultimately cheapens the sort of self-contained brilliance of the first film and the second film mm. um i kind of admire it i kind of admire this sort of loft this attempt this lofty attempt to mythologize this sort of fake yeah <laughs> fake you know this fake universe and yeah. and i i've always sort of I've never said steadfastly that I hate Prometheus or dislike it in any way, but I do think that whilst it's largely pointless, I kind of can't help but admire it. Um, I remember, I actually remember being, uh, you know, impressed by the opening in the sense that it was like really, it looked really nice. I saw it in 3D and it was in 3D. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It looked really cool, and I was like, oh god, this is this is huge. Like, imagine, yeah, maybe that is how life started by like a big pale man with big eyes dropping. I just remember thinking, yeah, yeah, just dissolving like a Barocca into a river. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, what the fuck is going on? And that's what I kind of admired about it the whole time. Was what the fuck is going on Mm. here? Like. And even like this sort of recur- recurring motif of the female character, he's clearly bringing these, or the central female character. Yeah, Numi Rapace. Yes. Mm. Oh, I actually thought was pretty good yeah. as the lead. I think maybe she could scene. have better served mm. um, by a sort of stronger, more self-contained narrative. But yeah. I think, um, you know, like the, the re- reoccurrence of sort of stylistic, visual and thematic motifs. Yep. The chest busting yeah, 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 happens yeah. again a little bit. Set against the backdrop of that mythologizing. Yeah, it, yeah. It, I don't know, it just sort of feels incongruent. You know, it doesn't sort of make a great deal of sense. Yeah. Um, and it was very much uh, like, it was like half a screenplay which existed on its own and was very self-contained and half a like, oh, oh hold on a minute. This is, this is alien. We've got yeah. to put the alien, pepper the alien stuff in there. But because the other screenplay was so... Huge and grand, like grandoise, I guess. Is that a word? Grandoise? Grandiose? <laughs> grandiose. Shit. Grand, uh, yeah. Because the script was so sort of grandiose that it almost forced the hand of the Alien franchise to be more mythologized. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. Maybe yeah, yeah. that could be a, a potential reason why. Oh, yeah. Prometheus was such an odd movie. It was odd. And then yeah. Alien Covenant after, which actually the first like half an hour of, I quite liked. Yeah, I preferred it to Prometheus, actually. Yeah, uh, yeah. Overall, yeah, yeah. I thought it was more succinct. It was still batshit. Like, a lot of, I don't remember a lot of it. No, uh, I just remember again thinking, like, oh, man, like, I don't know. There's this overwhelming sense of, does this film really need to exist throughout? Yeah. While sort of, sort of being slightly baffled by its existence then somehow again sort of admiring it for just trying it was um, 2017 wasn't it so superhero films were full swing by then yeah right? so they were probably thinking like oh, maybe God, we can we... sort of catch on this sort of group of disenfranchised blockbuster film fans that want to see these things back yeah on the big yeah screen. provide them with loads of context which previously they probably made their own mind up about mm. um it's just strange yeah interesting yes another one then Staying with sci-fi, because yeah, sci-fi yeah. seems to be sort of well-mined territory mm. yeah, in terms yeah. of the, the nostalgic element. I mean, it, it, yeah, and it's especially in like the 1980s where that's like visual effects got a lot better. Yeah, yeah. And so it's a lot of very visually striking sci-fi came out in the, you know, from 77 onwards, I guess, from, from Star Wars and then Blade Runner and then... Or the Alien like, 79. Yeah, even June, although the VFX and that weren't very good. Like It was kind of a, yeah, a turning point. Yeah, yeah, I agree, um, yeah. Sorry, yeah, your your no, other sci-fi example, RoboCop. Oh, okay. Ah. And we had the we had the RoboCop uh, twenty sixteen sort of remake. I guess it would be. Yeah. Um. I mean, 
that was a bizarre movie sort of like and what offended me so much about that remake was that it was um a 12 oh man uh, yeah I, I was thinking about this i think potentially i mean the reason why they made it a 12 was to get more bums and seats obviously. yeah they want to get the the dad who yeah. loves robocop Bring i'm saying i'm being this i'm saying this in stereotypical terms for impact yeah but you know the dad who was obviously around then Loves RoboCop. Yeah, to bring his son along. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, that, I didn't think you know? about it that way. At and all. it felt like that kind of movie. Yeah, and I mean, also back in the eighties, if you were like twelve years old, probably a lot easier to get into RoboCop than it would be now. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, they yeah. were thinking like, we need to get the same audience to watch the original, like the twelve-year-old. Yeah, yeah. But shit, we actually need to legally make it a twelve. Yeah, um, yeah. What, what struck me so much about that film is is the lack of that sort of rebelliousness to it, and mm. you know, the original. I mean, again, the original is a, a real favourite of mine, both in the genre and just generally. But what I love so much about the original is that it's like, it's a critique of all these things like, you know, uh, American bombast and mm. and vi- its obsession with violence and yeah. uh, the sort of security state, the obsessive policing and all these things. But it's, Verhoeven has always been so brilliant about embedding his critique so deeply within the stylistic choices yeah. of that era. Mm. So you could watch that film and I've watched it with people before and they go, it's a bit odd and cheesy. Yeah. But it's not. It's like no. and I sort of hate it when people say about eighties films. A minor bugbear is when people go, Oh, eighties films are cheesy and they, they think they've got it. Yeah. They've figured it out. <laughs> like with Verhoeven, you're just doing him such a disservice because yeah. like that's the whole point. Yeah. His film is about American bombast and this sort of sense of like sort of superiority it has for itself mm. and it's through its sort of like military might and power and weapons and violence and yeah. strength <laughs> and he embeds those things into the film in a way that action films would have been like that way in the 80s you know yeah, what I mean yeah. so and I think that's what makes the original alongside so many other brilliant things so fucking good yeah is that Verhoeven knows that he has to he has to fuse tone with execution yeah, and the, and the the fucking 2016 film is just it's just none of that. It's a flat, sterile reimagining of this yeah. sort of like origin story. Um, I mean, I have seen it, but I just my brain just sort of and I was tempted to rewatch it for the sake of the podcast, but I just couldn't do it because it's just so disheartening to see a film ex- like that exist on the basis that. He wants to literally say to people, remember Robocop? Yeah. Come and sit down in the cinema chair and relive it. It's shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Mate, uh, what I was thinking about this earlier, imagine if they did that to an American wealth in London. How oh. gutted would you be if they remade it and fucked that up? Like, they almost did as well. Max Landis was going to direct it. Stuff happened which uh, kind of sort of pushed it, pushed him aside, as it were. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. I, I always think that's such a treasure for me that, like, I would be so mortified if that were to ever be remade yeah 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 following on yeah uh for me and then we'll dip into some more uh, to other examples away from the sci-fi genre Mm. uh terminator okay another yeah i mean that that sort of that's an interesting one because that never had uh, that long a period where it wasn't at the cinema arguably the, Mm. the the longest gap was between three and four uh, so Rise of the Machines and Salvation, I think. Mm, yeah. Uh, but it has a gradient of uh, shitifying itself, doesn't it? Like, oh, I my mean... God. I mean, we. I remember we were at Union. We saw, was it Genesis? Terminator Genesis? Yeah. I mean, it's. I sort of try and refrain from hyperbole in situations like this, but I was 
blown away by how shit that film was. I mean, yeah. it was, and I, I, I try and acknowledge good points because I just imagine like the crew just, you know, just hearing someone say that, but, oh. yeah. but like, honestly, I mean, that film, oh my Lord. I mean, the way, again, we talk about these reoccurring motifs in order to sort of placate that nostalgic desire that yeah. obviously is why the film is there in the first place as in the, as in the remake or the yeah. sequel, whatever. Um, and it brings them back, like bringing Terminator back and getting him to use his sort of quotes or subverting them in a sort of weird way and trying to humanise him more. Strange, because it, it's trying to pull well, another T2, isn't it? Because because yeah. that Terminator 2 did it so well when he became almost the father figure. And then presumably just trying to do the same thing again. Yeah, Cameron picked his moments there, though, didn't he? Cameron picked his moments to like use... Arnie's limited range yeah. to his advantage and to the character's <laughs> advantage to develop the relationship with him and John Connor. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, no, and I just, again, it, it's also this thing that happens a lot in particularly sci-fi films is that they try and take the key elements of the original films. Obviously, Terminator very much about technology, right? The fear of technology. Yeah. The reason why so many people are terrified of computers is yeah, Terminator, yeah. <laughs> right? But then try and dump it crudely in the contemporary space by sort of making it about mobile phones oh man there's a whole yeah. sort of like Siri critique thing it was just fucking weird and what they did to um, the Terminator himself was they yeah. kind of John McClane him didn't they yeah they sort of like he just became a sort of a, a husk of his former character just shitting out one liners yeah like yeah. exactly just like what happened with like Die Hard as well and arguably that's another good, kind of interesting not science fiction but another interesting example of yeah. the, the nostalgia thing is like people I think studios tend to over rely on the catchphrases because they think that's what people remember that sort of anchors them in that in yeah. the original and the yeah. feelings of reverence mm. they have for the original. Or indeed, if they were around during the time the original was released, that version of themselves that watched that film all those years ago. Yeah. Right, yeah. okay. Exactly. Yeah, I, yeah, that's interesting. I, yeah. I, it's funny, I didn't consider Die Hard, but that's another. I mean, there are so fucking no, many. Just, yeah, every day I think of more. I'm yeah. Like, oh, and that, and that. Yeah. I've got to mention that, that, that on the podcast. We, I can't because we'll be here for hours, but like, I yeah, think, it's crazy. Okay. There's a, I think we'll move away from sci-fi and focus on a particular studio then, shall we? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, Disney. Oh, mate. Okay. I mean, I know it's, I know it, I know it's almost popular to shit on Disney now because they mm. own absolutely everything. Yeah, and they own all of the franchises that have sort of contributed to this debate about the sort of, you know, this what is happening to mainstream cinema and how yeah. is this impacting everyone else, everyone else in the in that space. Yeah. Um. So I know for those reasons, obviously, the fact they own Marvel, Star Wars, yeah. all the Fox properties, all that. I know it's. It's it's sort of easy to say fuck those guys because you know it is it's easy to slag off a big conglomerate and you know yeah an easy target aren't they yeah but I mean what's even more galling to me and I think you're going to sort of expand on this a little bit more is that not only do they have all these heavy hitters in their arsenal mm. uh, they also have just started remaking their own original properties in live action form yeah um, to almost exclusively detrimental effect yeah um i don't care what anyone says that i i don't like any of them no no uh like yeah i, I mean, mean no one can argue with, with me here no <laughs> Cause, no because it's just me and you sat in a objectively, room <laughs> i just think they're objectively worse like okay uh a good example because i i um i'm not a huge disney 
fan in general but one that really does stick with me is the lion king like i love that that's a real childhood film for me Mm -hmm. and i hold a lot of nostalgic feelings for that film Mm -hmm. uh like I, I, I've got it on Blu-ray. It cost me like thirty quid. As really? all Dis- yeah, all Disney Blu-rays always cost about thirty quid. Oh my god! But I bought it anyway because I'm like, I fucking love this film. It's worth it. Oh wow, okay. I didn't, yeah. really, I didn't know you had such reverence for it. Oh man, yeah. I lo- I, okay. I, I hate musicals as well, but I love The Lion King. It's strange. Um, okay, at- that is the film that so many kids of our generation mm. or adults now of our generation that yeah. in Jurassic Park. Yeah, I mean, but the, I think the Lion the King films. resonates a lot more with like male audiences as well. Do you think? I th- I feel like out of the out of all of the Disney properties, it's uh, I feel like that's more uh, not just male but like the father son of... element. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. Yeah, it's a very sort of very it's a bit of a boys movie. So, right, okay. Yeah. So yeah, um Oh, the fucking remake came out, and I was weirdly excited. I was like, "Okay, well, let's give it a go." They're doing like a, you know, John Favreau's behind the wheel. He's steady pair of hands as far as blockbuster films are concerned. Yeah, they? exactly. I was like, "Okay, this could be interesting," and it was just weird. It has to be a cartoon because it's about talking lines. You know, yeah, I mean? I just, yeah. as soon as I started watching it, I was like, I was really gutted because I, th- and I, and I revisited it. The only reason I watched the, the new one was because I loved the original so much and that's how it hooked me, man. Like, mm. it, And it, it mm. was such a, in hindsight, it was such a sucker punch Yeah. Uh, on that Disney kind of did. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, I don't know. I don't know how you sort of feel about that. I just think it speaks, and we, we, we sort of touched on the negative element of nostalgia and how it, certainly on the cultural level, it can lead to these brainless cash-ins. And I think mm. this is just the best example of it. Like, yeah. I remember thinking at the time, like, what, why, why, why? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know that sounds a bit sort of like a bit vague, but I just think, you know, you're just doing essentially the exact same film yeah. With a sort of kind of CGI that looks real for a bit mm. until they start talking and it looks shit. Yeah, it does. And it gets worse as well. Yeah. Um, they still can't get... I've talked about this in Avatar. They can't get fucking fire right. They just can't. They can't... You can't do CG fire. And it. there's a big bit at the end which takes place, yeah, like largely inside a fire. <laughs> and it just... It looked worse than the, the cartoon. And like, it's... But why is it? Why? 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 I mean, that film did pretty well right I mean it, yeah. it, it grows pretty well I mean I don't have the exact number to hand I think it was over a billion though. right well so that's probably why <laughs> yeah well yeah, yeah. <laughs> so obviously the film spoke to a lot of people and again we talk about these films being like an anchor point they sort of they bury mm. deep in this part of your life yeah Um, and I think that's just all that film's purpose was was to sort of like briefly sort of you know pull you in yeah. to that part of yourself when you sort of you know sat on the carpet with a Bag of Harry Bow, you yeah, know, watching yeah. it on VHS. You know what I mean? Over and over again. And <laughs> for some reason, that having like a real, being a really formative moment in your life and reliving it. But yeah. I think it's strange that you know you can then watch it as an adult. I don't know. Like when I think about like major moments like that in my life, um, like those sort of cultural moments that I can anchor to. For me, it was like Lost World, the real old Lost World. Oh wow! Okay. Not, yeah, because yeah. I was obsessed with dinosaurs as a kid, and I yeah. really loved stop motion animation. Uh, I even yeah. preferred it to like the technological innovation of like Jurassic Park, which of course blew my fucking head off. As yeah, a kid. why wouldn't yeah. it? But like, I love like Jason and the Argonauts. Mm. Any Ray Harryhausen stop motion animation, I was just all over. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I still have reverence for them on that basis, mm. but I often think like, but. Like, what's the point of me sort of watching it and thinking like this? Like, am I trying to get back into the mind of my sort of six-year-old, seven-year-old self? Like, yeah, I don't know, because... 
I don't know. Like, I'm, I quite, I'm quite happy being an adult, really. Yeah. So no. why do I feel this need to sort of like think back to this, to this sort of, even because we talked about this idea of nostalgia at this point in our lives being important as we come to this big crossroads that typically comes in your late twenties, early thirties. But yeah. why, as a child? Yeah. Why do you want to go back to this point of like being a child? Like I'm really uh, yeah, that. being like intellectually less complex. Yeah, yeah. It's really odd. Um, I feel um, I don't know about you, but I quite often I have you know <laughs> intellectually less complex. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's just it's strange that you yearn for that. I guess the simplicity, is bliss. Yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe potentially the reason is is when you're when you've maybe like had like not a bad day, but maybe you're just a bit tired or something. I think there's a tendency to want to revisit as to po- as opposed to explore. Yeah. And that might be the why you reach for those films. Uh and it, it, I think it is like a psychological phenomenon like a, in, like a blanket almost like a safety blanket. Yeah, like in the most warm. extreme sense of the term in the mm. sense that I can like listen to an album I listened to in my teen years and it will take me back to that sort of sweaty wanky <laughs> period of my life like yeah. for some reason think oh that was kind of all right. Yeah. But like it's even more comforting to go back to that point further in mm. your life. Like we touched on with After Sun, we are very much sculpted by our childhood. And I guess yeah. the popularity of these films is testament to how important that phase of our life is because we keep yeah. going back for more and oh, more. A ceaseless yeah. <laughs> barrage of Disney offerings sort yeah. of regurgitated and shat out. Um, Aladdin, another. Oh, yeah. I mean, Beauty and the Beast. That Beauty and the Beast. That, that made over a billion. Jungle um, Book. Yeah, Jungle Book. That was the, uh, that quite probably, warmly received. That was probably the better one. Of, yeah, of the, I think it just had a, had a good cast. and That was Favreau again, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's why he, they got him to do The Lion King. But what I think, the, re- the reason why I think that the Jungle Book worked better than The Lion King was The Lion King's a lot more visually striking. And like, there's less characters in it, and it's a lot more like you say, it's about a father and son, and it's a lot more personal. Whereas the Jungle Book is a bit more sprawling and a bit less uh, tonally focused. And so you can you can remake it, and people will be like, "Oh, I remember this. I like this. That's charming." Yeah, maybe that's just a, a, the reason why it it resonated with people. The remake resonated with people so much more. Yeah, let's think about other films that touch into. Other aspects of nostalgia. Yeah. Uh, you wanted to mention uh, I got a, I T2. Got, yeah, T2 Trainspotting. Yeah, not Terminator 2. Yeah. No. Um, we talked about that enough. So there's there's two films Yeah, I want to talk about, uh, and they both carry the same kind of themes. Uh, T2 Trainspotting, the sequel to 1996's Trainspotting, and The World's End as well, the Edgar Wright film. Mm-hmm. Um, so first off, T2 uh, is a, it's a sequel, and arguably it did use nostalgia to pull the, the kind of core audience from that first yeah. film back in. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, the actual story itself focuses a lot on kind of male behaviour through the ages and, and looking back at past experiences. That is actually kind of like literally a plot device in the film. Okay. Um, so, for example, there's a line in it where they sort of revisit a lot of locations from the first film. Um, and there's a great line in it where he just goes, uh, "You're a tourist in your own youth," it's, <laughs> uh, and it's just such a, a moment of um, where they, they kind of use the, the trope of the sequel that is to repeat, you know, be repetitive. Yeah. 
low, low, it's chock full of moments from the first film, but it feels sad. Yeah. And it's meant to feel sad to the point where, you know, the Born Slippy track at the end. Yeah, yeah. They update it and it's so much slower and it's so much more plodding. And, like, you kind of realise that you're now inhabiting the brains of 46-year-olds. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there's a, another, like, there's a great sort of quote from... I'm a big Danny Boyle fan, by the way. Like, just want to point out there. Like, I'm a huge... Yeah. Huge I'm amazed it's taken to episode... I know, yeah. I well, I mean, second episode, but three overall for you to sort of confess that. Yeah, so he's... I'm impressed. Oh, thank you. Yeah, he he, there's a, he just says in a lot of interviews you know, concerning T2 Trainsporting, he just says, um, the first film is about a bunch of young men who don't care about time, and the second film is a bunch of older men uh, who have realised that time doesn't care about them. Yeah. And it just, like, kind of, it, the film exists as a, a big kind of critique and celebration both a critique and a celebration of nostalgia. So I thought it was just an interesting film to Yeah, to I think it's a really great film mm. to mention in the sense that it has such a huge presence, the original, mm. in... I mean, I guess for us, we were probably a bit too young to really appreciate it in the era of the sort of 90s. Yeah, big time. But for many people um, who were sort of, I guess, in their sort of teens, late teens, early 20s, it, mm. in the 90s, it was a huge, huge cultural yeah, moment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think um, it would speak to them quite a lot yeah. now. Oh, totally. And I guess it speaks to us as well in that sense that we grew up with that film. And there was a sort of a presence about that film. I remember sort of always being vaguely aware of it, even as a kid. Yeah, it was mentioned a lot. And yeah. it, was, it was almost like it was mentioned like a video nasty. Oh, was, okay. To me, anyway, I remember it being like a film that you shouldn't watch. Yeah. And then uh, I found out it was because I loved Sunshine and Millions and stuff. And I was like, holy fucking, I need to see Trainspotting then. Yeah. And uh, I remember buying it on DVD. And again, going back to the, the idea of like my personal connection with Trainspotting, it wasn't in the 90s at all. It was probably in the mid to late 2000s that I first watched it. But it's still. It gave me a sense of the nineties, and it, again, it's that it's that vicarious sort yeah. of seeing through. Mm. You know, you're seeing through that sort of grain, yeah, that sort of film stock. You're seeing yeah. through the film stock into the nineties, and that is how you perceive the nineties. Oh, completely. I mean, yeah. I was born in nineteen ninety, so I have a sort of vague memory of snapshots of the nineties. Yeah, um, but yeah, I think a lot of where the sort of ideas and feelings, there's inexplicable feelings I have about that period of time, mm. come from. Not just train spotting, but other films from that period. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that Boyle uses that the idea of the sequel as a device to sort of again critique, as you said, and celebrate that yeah. critique this idea of almost existing solely in the memories of your youth. Yes, um, but also celebrating the fact I don't know, sort of celebrating aspects of it, celebrating aspects of yeah. It's just well, what, a- what elements do do you think the film does the film celebrate? Well, think? I mean, there's just great moments of uh, um, Renton and Sick Boy kind of reconnecting. Yeah. And they kind of realised, like, man, we had a great time in our 20s. Right? Yeah. We had a fantastic... like, and we, we shared a bond which went beyond drugs. We were actually really good friends. Yeah, yeah. But it just... And it kind of is peppered with those lovely moments of just, like, they these men have grown apart and yet they still love each other. Yeah. Uh, but in, and in a sense... It's sort of um, and well the, the the novel in weirdly the the first novel is like exists as a kind of artifact in the sequel uh, in that um, right. I don't know if you remember but uh, Spud uh, he starts writing the first train spotting oh it's meta in yeah big time a lot of people didn't like that I thought it was quite interesting that the second film viewed the first as a 
not not as fact, but yeah. as a story that yeah, yeah. these four young men want to relive. I really like your point there about nostalgia being a tool for reconnection. Mm, so yeah. you reconnect with an older form of yourself, yeah, and then you realise not only that, oh yeah, all right, they were, I did really have a good time. I made some good decisions in terms of the company I kept, yeah, um, specifically about the company you kept, the people you meet, and how that can allow you to then actually mm. solidify, strengthen, or reconnect. Yeah, in later life with people that maybe that you're, yeah, um, that you've sort of, I get drifted away. Yeah, you're like you, like you say, your life gets in the way. You have you get married, you have kids, you you buy a house, and it's just a a, a nice reminder. I think that second film that like don't worry, you can still <laughs> you can still have yeah. You don't have to be. It doesn't necessarily have to drown you. No, that yeah. stuff because I can get so easily worked up by this sort of stuff drowning me mm. for some reason I don't know why but I just feel like all this stuff is drowning you but it doesn't have to be that way no 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 and no, I think and I think that's a really yeah really nice way of putting it through the lens of that film yeah yeah I just I I've got a newfound appreciation for it oh uh, cool I'm so, glad because yeah. it's a lot of it's the kind of film people watch once and I feel like it really deserves a rewatch because it's all about just that nostalgia effectively yeah it's a really nice and largely positive comment on it um yeah, the the world's end. Uh, do you remember watching that? Um, I so, remember not being as keen on it overall. This, this is what I want to talk about. So uh, I think that's sort of like a fairly yeah. It's a, a widely regarded as the weakest of the three, and I kind of agree. I think it is the weakest in terms of overall enjoyment and impact. Definitely. However, however. sorry, not to sort of shit on no, you no, before no, we no. start talking about it. I feel like it. This is like a stupid theory of mine. No, I want to hear totally it. I'm, I'm all, you know, if you've 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 sort of given me yeah uh, <laughs> more scope to appreciate T2, <laughs> so I'm really I'm all ears. So Edgar Wright just made Shaun of the Dead hot fuzz. Right, he's yeah. on a high. Yeah, he's somehow you know like skirted around the difficult second album. Thing. Yes. And he's got to do a third one because for some reason people were obsessed with trilogies. So yeah, and yeah, like yeah. people were pushing for this film, and he, I feel like him and Peg were a bit hesitant to write it. Okay. And so what I think they might have done is they they wrote a film commenting on that feeling, and the, okay. the idea that that sorry if you haven't seen the world's in the central character is kind of a man child stuck in his own past. So he's uh, a victim of it, that. Um, excessive nostalgia yeah you know being someone that is drunk on it yeah exactly so he wants to relive uh, a night out he had when he was 18 and he wants to kind of recapture that spirit but the uh, (laughs) the film is basically I think about Pagan Wright's struggles to to reignite the fires of Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuss (laughs) yeah 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 in in the because the whole thing is just about how it's fruitless you're uh, never going to replicate that same feeling again for exactly. anybody so it, it, in them saying that i feel like is it a bad film or is it just a slightly i mean it's it's not a bad film but like is it the weakest of the three or is it actually the most weirdly clever <laughs> i don't know right, I, okay i might be reading That's too much into it i like it's definitely the least funny and the yeah. first two are absolutely hilarious and really quotable the third one isn't but it's just, I do feel like it's also the most tragic and the most heartfelt at the same time. It's it's definitely the yeah. saddest one, isn't it? Mm. And it's the saddest chiefly through Peg's character. And yeah. Desire. Really... I mean, yeah. No, I, I see that. And I like the idea of talking about the nature of the sequel as this sort of desire to get audiences to feel the same thing over and over again. Yeah, yeah. I remember 
uh, going back to aliens, actually. Mm. Oh, go on. Uh, yeah. Cameron, I'm sort of paraphrasing his quote because I can't remember it, but he said that like there was absolutely no point remaking Alien again. There's yeah. just no point because you're never going to get there. You're never going to do that again. Yeah. Because yeah. as soon as you, as soon as someone makes something that something like that. You're just never going to do that again because yeah. of the circumstances around the film's construction, mm. the era, yep. the people involved, etc., etc. There's so many reasons why you just can't replicate the same thing again. Yeah, yeah. And he said, "Well, but I can do this. Mm. I can do. I think in his words, like white knuckle action, okay. which at that point, hundred percent agree, right? Oh, yeah. So, and I think that ethos of that idea in in this sort of context of nostalgia works quite well because it's almost like saying, no, no, no." You know, like obviously, I'll, I will anchor things with some similarities. Obviously, it's still got aliens in it, yeah. but you know, what I mean, this idea that actually you can you can take a little bit of that formula and position it in something else. As long as it's competently constructed and made, it can have its own legacy. Yeah. Same with Texas Chainsaw Massacre too. Oh my god! Right? I, lo- I fucking love. That yeah, film, man. That like sequel. Texas Chainsaw Massacre for me is one of my absolute favourite all-time films. I love it. I talk about Alien being this watershed moment for me in terms of horror and sci-fi. It's pipped for me by Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I just love it. I think it's a a fucking special film. It's a near masterpiece. Yeah, Yeah. I think so. And again, there are so many things about the film that make it the way it is. The the Mm. budgetary constraints. Yep. for example, the arguably... Cre- the the yeah, creativity the, that was born from that. Exactly. Yeah. And you can't replicate that mm, no. at all. It's a, it's a film of its time. Like the filmmakers, the horror filmmakers like Toe Pooper and Wes Craven are going out into the dirtiest, most fucking arid parts of America and yeah. dragging these stories through the dirt and the, and the <laughs> blood. Yeah. And they're sort of making just terrifying audiences and shocking conservative individuals you know and there's no way you can replicate that yeah. and then Toe Pooper goes well actually I'm going to make another film but I'm going to make it this wacky sort of still vaguely horrifying but sort of funny yeah. film you know I, that film that sequel is made of rubber I swear to god yeah like, you can see the sets yeah like, everything's yeah. lit with like orange red and blue it, it looks like a kind of fairground ride but yeah. I love that and yeah, yeah you're right it, he is basically saying you know what I'm not going to make the first one again because I can't because yeah. you're giving me too much money I'm going to make this instead effectively like yeah, it's comedy basically isn't it yeah like, yeah yeah it's hor- It's gruesome and horrifying but no not in the same way the first one no it's not as impactful mm. um, um, oh nice I didn't think about it. I forgot about that yeah and I, does that I mean I, so this is a bit of a tenuous link between those films and, and this but I guess mm. it speaks more to the earlier films that we've discussed does that say something broader about nostalgia in general like enjoy it yeah but don't think that it's ever gonna you're gonna replicate that no you never are in, in, if anything I mean you'll have much more success going into the future with a more of an open mind like yeah. maybe like Edgar Wright tried to do with the world's end he's just like you know what? I'm just going to make this instead I'm going to I'm going to say I'm going to say I can't make hot fuzz again that's what I'm going to say with yes. my third film yeah yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. or like Toe Hooper saying like you know what I'm going to just I'm going to make what I want to make instead and yeah. I'm, I'm going to progress I'm not going to regress I think yeah that it, it, it does speak to the pitfalls of, no, of nostalgia I think mm. I feel and uh, and maybe those those particular filmmakers aversion to it because i mean edgar wright made last night in soho as well which is all about how the past isn't necessarily as glitzy and glamorous as you might remember mm-hmm. i forgot about that actually until i mean we do now. have this sort of tendency uh for sort of collective revision you know we have this collective revisionism of our history don't we i think yeah 
and we seem to think you know you hear that sort of classic thing i mean i've never really heard it said to me directly for a very very long time i'm struggling to think i've ever actually heard it said to me but not like the old days oh yeah it's like a phrase you hear quite a lot and that sort of historical reverence for periods of history that obviously were rife with their own issues and problems and difficulties and and yet you know that reverence for it is almost is it born out of a fear of what's ahead of you more than anything else just to say it wasn't like the old days yeah exactly it's yeah no that's interesting and a lot of filmmakers do sort of either either really push for that hey remember the old days or Mm. push against it let's think about maybe away from Mm. uh mainstream cinema okay and think about sort of more well, no, sort of the the term mainstream just sort of feel, makes you feel a bit nauseated because we're like, yeah. <laughs> you know, there are plenty of filmmakers that use nostalgia as a device, as as a as a, arguably a more a stronger thematic device. Paul Thomas Anderson, for example, mm. Licorice Pizza. Oh yeah, I mean okay. that's his most recent film. Yeah, a film steeped in the time to which it was made. Yeah, it was the nineteen seventies. Yes, right? yeah. yeah. I mean he he uses. Sort of the film. I think he used like the film stock from the era. I'm fairly sure. Oh, I might it? be wrong in that assumption. And every single one of his films is also, as an aside, in the San Fernando Valley. Yes, basically yeah, every single film. Yeah. So he's clearly someone that's driven hugely by mm. nostalgia in his movies. Yeah, and I think maybe his use of nostalgia is a lot more personal. Yeah, than say like Danny Boyle or Edgar Wright or even like you know the the Disney fires. Is he uses it as not as a tool to say to to his audience hey remember a time it's like he's using it as a means to express his own affection for his mm. own past mm. uh, i feel like that that's definitely the difference it's less of a marketing tool for him you yeah. know what i mean obviously people in the marketing department of his film will probably use that as yeah. a selling point but for him at the start or from the inception of the film it's not about necessarily you know getting people to come and enjoy a slice of the 70s it's about chiefly about the story first that happens to be set in the 70s in the case of licorice pizza yeah yeah and he'll even yeah licorice pizza sort of interweaves prominent moments from that era into the plot as well quite successfully like the the gas shortage yeah yeah. quite a big thing but it it doesn't feel like uh a, a grab, a, a kind of mind no. grab. It, it feels like um, they're almost ignored because yeah. the film's about that sort of youthful, ex- again, that youthful yeah. exuberance. To use yeah. that phrase again for some reason. Yeah, no. But you know, it's about how kids are just they're getting on with it, and all this stuff's going on in the background. It's almost uh, like background noise. All of the sort of tumultuous issues and the sort yeah. of social struggles and all of these things mm. are going on in the background. Yeah. I think it's really well done mm. in the sense that it works well to the themes of the movie. In the sense that you know, as kids, you are sort of a little bit more aloof. You can apply this sort of dreamlike, yeah. You just kind of idea to it, bumping into moments and and not even really entangling yourselves. No, yeah. But in the background, yeah. there's this this very sort of present mm. historical. Um, I guess there's a sense of seriousness in yeah. that background, which is acknowledged again in aspects of the narrative as well, but chiefly in 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 the sort of background noise of if the sort of like TV reports and the news yeah, reports. Yeah. Oh man, yeah, Paul Thomas Anderson. Like, yeah, a lot of his films are period pieces, aren't they? Yeah, uh, Phantom Thread, There Will Be Blood. They're all they're all nearly all set in the past. Mm. Um, not even necessarily moments from his own past. Like There Will Be Blood is a lot more kind of a, a bit, bit more of a history lesson in that it was when was that like eighteen? Yeah, it's the sort of, yeah, yeah. The, the, the oil boom, the sort of taming of the Wild West and all that sort of yeah. Yeah, but he manages to 
keep it quite human. Yeah. I mean, nobody's going to, nobody alive today is going to necessarily remember that era anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Another thing I just want to quickly touch on is how um, memories in these sorts of, we we sort of touched on Paul Thomas Anderson. I want to just quickly before the end lean into Terence Malick a little bit. Oh, yeah. Okay. Because I fucking love Tree of Life. Okay. I just, I love that movie. Mm. One of the reasons I love it so much is its use of the camera as a way of showcasing the fractious nature in which, as adults, we remember our memories. Okay. And the nostalgia that is attached to those memories. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know if you remember, but the scenes of the camera sort of like, almost like following this sort of characters as children, like a sort of like a, almost like a puppy or a dog. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Just sort of crawling through the grass. And it all feels so fractured and so quick. Yeah. And the the way Malik cuts to like so these sort of formative moments of like the first bit of discipline, mm. the softness of the mother offset by the hardness, the tough love of the father. Yeah. You know, and all these things and how they link to this sort of like these wanderings, these existential wanderings of the adult. You know yeah. what I mean? I don't know. I just I wonder what you thought about that because it's like when I think about a film that interrogates memory mm. and the power that memory holds in sort of how you move forward. I don't know. I just in terms of like uh, certainly a, a Western or sort of more American or English language example. I can't really think of a film personally for me that does it better. Yeah, than kind of presents memory as a, a tool for as a um, mess as a means to go on. Yeah, and yeah, also yeah. yeah, as a fractured, horrendous, imperfect mess i mean like yeah that film is very it's very malick isn't it i mean there's dinosaurs in it at one point yes there's also a big uh sort of 20 minute section of about the the origin of like time which he <laughs> and, interweaves into this sort of tale of nostalgia i mean only crazy. malick man oh i know but he but, he kind of pulls it off i know i, I need to yeah, revisit I that so. film actually. i 100 percent think so but if if you're trying to think of a friday night film yeah <laughs> about the nature of memory and how that sculpts who we are, that's a pretty fucking good place to start. Yeah, I think so. I think that's probably one of his strongest films, actually. Yeah. In general. He, his, his filmmaking style is is quite... Um, I don't know what the right word is to describe it, but it, it Eclectic? is... Eclectic? Yeah, it, it is quite, like, floaty, I guess. And, oh, sorry, okay, and yeah. And fractured and... But never in a way that isn't not, sort of, like, completely impactful. Mm. So what? What I mean, what a topic to for him to tackle? Yeah, that's probably why that film uh, is kind of exists as one of his best. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So there we go. It's mm. been a, a far-reaching discussion. Sure has from uh, from from our own personal relationship with nostalgia to Alien to Malik to yeah. Lion King to Edgar Wright. Oh god, we, yeah. we we don't do things by halves here. No, mate, that's for sure. We uh, Ridley Scott came up a lot in that. One. Oh yeah, yeah, good old Ridders. Oh Ridley. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, well, that's been good fun. Let's yeah, let, let, let's cut it here. Let's cut it right here. Yeah, and listen back, and hopefully it won't sound all echoey. Questing the cinematic So there we have it. Then more unfocused rambling about movies completed. Fantastic. Thank you so much for listening. Yeah, uh, thank you for making it to the end. Yeah, yeah. What are we going to discuss next? So, uh, I'm glad you asked. Mm. Uh, we are going to be discussing Mark Jenkins' follow-up to the brilliant bait, mm. Ennies Men. Yes. Uh, it's a film that we have had on our radar for a while, as I'm yeah. sure many people have. Yeah, really striking trailer. Yes. Really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I try and avoid trailers 
just for the simple fact that I don't know, like I, I not just for the sake of like um, ruining any aspect of narrative, but just I don't want I want to be able to immerse myself in it. Mm, okay, yeah. So, but I did catch a little bit of it. And it was pretty striking, as yeah. you'd expect. It's, it doesn't give anything away at all. No, it's just a series of uh, kind of really striking, very grainy looking images. Yes, uh, it's first film shot in color. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Of course, yes. Because so, Bait was yeah. black and white, wasn't really it? Really excited to see that, actually. Uh, I love films set on islands. Don't know why. Like The Lighthouse, and even there's a film called The Retreat with like Killian Murphy. And I don't know why. There's something about an island an with island. a little yeah, lighthouse yeah. on it. Like I agree. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned Lighthouse because I think this film will lend to a broader discussion about the the resurgent popularity of the folk horror. Yes, oh, definitely. And yeah, yeah. Uh, how that ties into the release of Venice Men and the growing popularity of Venice Men. At this moment, I think it's looks to be outperforming Avatar 2 in Cornwall, which is a lovely bit of news. Is that right? I think so. I, I remember reading that. I'm not sure how right that is. <laughs> oh, no, I'm going to look that up. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, so apparently there was a night that uh, everyone went to see Ennis Men as opposed to Avatar and the Whitney Houston film. <laughs> For that evening, anyway. Well done, Mark Jenkins. So, yes, we'll look forward to discussing that next week. Uh, have a lovely weekend. Mm. Um... And we'll see you in the next one. See you next one. Take Cheers. care. Bye. 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 Bye.